Bibles this morning, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Each week for three years, I've asked you to open your Bibles on Sunday mornings to Matthew. And this is our third anniversary uh, this Sunday in this study of this book of Matthew. Don't know how long it's going to take us to get through, but we're three years to get to the 11th chapter. And so I don't know. I hope that I live long enough to get done. But there, there is so much here. There's just really a wealth of information that we have in the Gospel of Matthew teaching us about Jesus, and it's well worth our time that we spend here. This is the Apostle Matthew's account or his record of the life of Christ. Most of your Bibles, if you look at the title page to Matthew, it'll say the Gospel according to Matthew. And it's called the Gospel because it is the good news that Jesus who is the Son of God, who is co-eternal, who is co-existent with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit, became incarnate and came to this world to be our Savior. Now, Matthew hails Jesus as the long-expected Messiah. And the good news is that all that will believe in him and receive him as Lord and Savior will have their sins forgiven. They will be reconciled to God and they are promised that they will have an eternal home in heaven with God. Now the Gospel of Matthew is one of four Gospel accounts and I know that you're aware of this. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them is written from a little bit different perspective to show without doubt that this man Jesus was of divine origin that he was God in the flesh, that he is uniquely the only begotten Son of God. And so Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. After Jesus died on the cross and after he'd risen from the dead, after he had ascended back into heaven, then the Holy Spirit came upon the apostle Matthew and his memory was jarred. The Holy Spirit caused him to remember the words of Christ and then to record those for us to read so that we might understand what God did in sending us a Savior. In the Gospel of John, we have some of Jesus' departing words to the disciples. In John 14, Jesus said to them, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, this is miraculous that after so many events, after so much teaching of Jesus, after so much time had gone by, that the apostles were able to remember exactly what Jesus said and did. And so they preserved the teachings of Christ so that others might hear and believe. Now, that fact has much to do with our subject today. The question that every person needs to answer is, do I believe the record that God gave of his son? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? And the answers to those questions have profound consequences. Now, if you look at the 11th chapter, beginning in verse number 16, we're going to explore this a little bit today and in the next message. And we're going to look at ways that people respond to the message of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. And we look at Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse number 16. Jesus says, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is likened to children sitting in the markets and calling under their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. 
For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children." Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Father, we thank you. We're able to look into your word today. Pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to this passage and help us to learn from it what you'd have us to know. Bless everyone who hears today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the first nine chapters of this book, Matthew has given very clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, we've gone over those proofs on many different occasions. We've seen how that Matthew talks about the miraculous birth of Jesus, how that Jesus fulfilled ancient prophecies that were written about him. We've looked at his supernatural power in performing many different types of miracles. And as we read these various proofs that are given here, the reader is faced with the same decisions that the people had in those times when they personally saw those miracles. Do we believe the proofs that the Word of God has to say about Jesus? Do we believe that these things are done according as the Word of God says? Is it reasonable for us to believe what is written here, or do we ignore what Scripture says? Now, God tells us in the 15th verse of this chapter what we are to do. He says, and Jesus says, "...he that hath ears to hear, let him hear." And that means to hear with understanding. It means to hear and to believe it. And so whenever God's word is read, whenever it's spoken, whenever it's preached, then the listener has to respond to what he's heard. And we either choose that we are going to hear it and obey it, or we choose to hear and reject what we hear. And if we decide to do nothing about it, then we've made a decision because a decision of indifference is actually disobedience. The Bible says that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And so unless we do that, we are in disobedience to God. Now, we've seen in the previous weeks that it's possible for Christians to come to a place where they have periods of doubt about what God says. A person may become a Christian and then because of adverse circumstances or because of misunderstandings, he might be confused, he might be overcome with doubt. And we have an example here that's given of John the Baptist that he went through his period of doubt. But as we look at that story that we've talked about in the past few weeks, we could say about John that his doubt was an honest doubt. It wasn't a defiant doubt. It wasn't that he just rejected the evidence that was given. But John had been put into prison, and because of misunderstandings about the first Advent mission of Christ, he began to have his doubts. Those were honest doubts. 
And when he was given the proof that he needed, he believed and he readily accepted those uh, proofs and he didn't ask again. But as we read these scriptures, the reactions to what Jesus did and what John did is much different because here is not honest doubt, but rather we find an attitude of rejection that takes different forms. Here in this particular part, it's the attitude of apathy and criticism. Later, as we go on in the next chapter, we'll find that it's an attitude where they begin to blaspheme Jesus. And then finally, it ends in rejection and violence as the unbelievers demand the crucifixion of Christ. But here today, we're looking at apathy and criticism. That's the reaction of the people. And what that caused with them was the rejection of John and Jesus. This is what we're looking at here today first, is the rejection of John and Jesus. Now, this section is a continuation of the previous in which Jesus made it very clear that John's doubt was not an indication of his character. The fact that John had sent some of his disciples to question Jesus and to receive confirmation of his lordship, that was not any indication that John was a fickle person, that he was indecisive about what he believed, or that he was a wishy-washy person. John was rock-solid. He was convinced of what God had called him to do, and what he wanted to make doubly sure of is that when he called Jesus the Lamb of God, when he says that he's the Messiah, he's the one who will take away the sins of the world, he wanted to be absolutely sure that he was correct when he said this. And so Jesus made it clear that John was asking right questions, and he proceeds to show them that John is not the fickle one, but they were actually the ones that couldn't make up their minds. Now, many people came to hear John and uh, see John, hear him preach, because they were just fascinated with this man. They came to hear him because he was so different, and they were curious to see what he would do next, what he would say next. And so they were worked up, and they got stirred by his preaching just long enough to get their curiosity satisfied. And then when it was satisfied, like many people today, when the fad is over, they started looking for the next greatest religious experience. And I think that's what we find in many churches today. Because instead of settling down into a solid study of the Word of God and finding our fascination in what Christ has done and the wonder-working power of God in salvation, instead of that, there's this constant pursuit of the next greatest religious fad. Now, it might be the purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven life. It could be the outlandish, charismatic gifts of speaking in tongues. It might be the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's so prevalent today. People change and they switch. They're constantly on the move, trying to satisfy their senses and their felt needs rather than getting down deep in the Word of God and settling their faith on the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we notice here the way that Jesus gets that point across. He does it with a parable. He uses an illustration. And as I look at the way that Jesus does this, I can, I can almost sense a, a tone of exasperation. I don't think that Jesus ever had to grasp for words, and I don't think that he had problems wondering what he was going to say next, like I do many times. But I do get the feeling that Jesus must have paused for just a moment, and he says in verse number 16, Now, what can I compare these people to? But whereunto shall I liken this generation? And I see him in a pensive state. He's thinking. 
What are these people like? How can I get this point across? And so he comes with a parable, a a comparison, and he says, this is what this generation is like. He says, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. And so Jesus here compares them to children. And he speaks about the childishness of the people. Now, these were people who thought that John was fickle, but Jesus turns the tables on them and he says, you're the ones that are acting like children. You're the ones that can't make up your minds. You're the people that are never satisfied. You are the people that are like children that can't decide which game that you want to play. Now, sometimes it is fine for us to be like children. Jesus taught us that when we come to the faith, that we have to come like children. He said in Luke chapter 18, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Now there, Jesus is talking about how our faith in him should be like a child's faith, a faith that trusts his parents child believes what he's told. A child understands authority. Children should obey without question. But what Jesus is talking about is the faith of a child that comes that is simple and unencumbered. It comes with humility. And that's the way God expects people to come to him. But coming as a child in that sense is very much different from being childish. People don't like to be called childish. And if you want to get some folks riled up, just say to them, you're acting like a baby. You're acting like a little kid. You're being childish. And that's what Jesus is doing in this scripture. He says to them, you are acting like children. Now, in studying this saying of Jesus in verses 16 and 17, it it was really quite interesting. You might not know this, but this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus refers to children's games. And he's here speaking of games that children play when they imitate adults. And I'm sure that you're familiar with that. When your children were growing up, they like to, most likely, like to imitate things that you did. I know when my girls were growing up, they often liked to play house. And so they would want to dress up in their mom's clothes and to put on her jewelry. They wanted to wash the dishes and clean the house, things that you could never get them to do when they became teenagers. But they they wanted to have their their easy-bake oven and to fix all kinds of things to experiment on us. You know, if you go over to the K4 room or K5 over there on the other side of the building, you'll find little kitchen sets and stoves and sinks and dishes. And that's because kids like to imitate grown-ups. They like to play house. And we look at that and we see what children do. We think that's so cute that they're trying to imitate adults. You know, when when I was little, I used to like to play preacher. And that's because I wanted to be like my dad. And so I would, I would get a pulpit and, and, a, and a Bible, and I'd begin to preach a sermon. And I know some of you think that I'm still trying to play preacher and not doing a very good job of it. But every now and then, you know, we would take the dog and we'd baptize him. And, and uh, he, he was okay with that. It's a little bit harder to baptize a cat because cats are full of demons and they don't want to be baptized. 
but this is the idea. This is this is the idea that we have here in verses 16 and 17 that Jesus is talking about kids playing games where they imitate adults. Only this is not talking about playing house. Here you see that Jesus refers to the marketplace, and this would be the part of the town like the town square. And usually that would be filled with people that would bring their things there to sell. It would be a very busy place, a bustling place, and you'd have all kinds of people there gathered in the marketplace. But there were times when the marketplace was empty when the selling was over with and days that they didn't have the market, then the children would come to this central area and they would all get together and they would begin to play. And it was interesting the type of games that they played. In verse number 17, you'll see that Jesus talks about piping and dancing. And most likely what he's referring to there is a wedding. Weddings were very public events and they were watched by the children I mean, they would see this often, and so children would like to act out those roles. They'd want to play wedding. And so somebody would be the bride, one of the little girls would be the bride, and and somebody else would be the groom, and the other children would be the attendants at the wedding, and those children would act joyfully, and they would act like adults, and they would pipe, and they would sing, and they would be really happy. But on the other hand, there was another public event that was very common, and that was a funeral. And sometimes children would play funeral. They had funerals that would come through the streets and the bodies would be brought through there and there'd be a procession and all of that. And so children would want to play funeral. And so somebody would volunteer to be the corpse and uh, the other kids would volunteer to be the mourners and they would do what the adults did. And it was different then because then they used to have professional mourners. They would actually hire people to come and, and to weep and wail because someone had died. And so kids would play these type of games, but but since they were children, they couldn't make up their minds about what they wanted to play. And so to get everybody playing the same game was a hard thing to do. Some of them didn't want to play wedding because they didn't want to be happy. Some of them didn't want to play funeral because they didn't want to be sad. And some of them just didn't want to play at all. And so they wouldn't participate in anything that was going on. And so they couldn't agree, the children couldn't agree with what they were going to play. And just like children do today, somebody gets upset and they pick up their ball and they decide they're going to go home. And this is what Jesus says to these adult people that listened to the message of John the Baptist and the one that he preached. And he said, this is the way that you're acting. You are never satisfied with what we give you. And you'll notice there in verses 18 and 19 that this is the way they treated John and Jesus. And John and Jesus were very different characters. They had a different approach. And people weren't satisfied when John acted one way and when Jesus acted another way. They didn't like either way that they did. Now that brings me then to the second point of their rejection. And this brought on the criticism of the people. Now, we need to understand here that Jesus is pointing out the unreasonableness of their unbelief. At first, these were people that gladly heard the message of John the Baptist. They went out in droves to hear him. John was a very popular preacher. So popular, in fact, that when he preached against Herod's sin, and Herod would have liked to have killed him, instead Herod chose to put John into prison. And he was afraid because John was such a popular preacher. People considered him to be a prophet that if he were to kill John the Baptist, then he would have an uprising on his hands. But now we see that the enthusiasm over John was starting to taper off. 
And so if they were consistent about anything, it was the consistency of their rejection. And you see, if they accepted John the Baptist as a prophet, then they would have to accept Jesus as the Messiah. There was no way they could get around that. If John was sent from God, and he's the one that came to prepare the way of the coming Messiah, and John declared that Jesus was the Messiah, then you can't believe that John is a true prophet unless you also believe what he said is true. He said, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one we've been waiting on. This is the real thing. He's the Messiah. And so in order to avoid that that obvious problem, that dilemma that they have, they just began to criticize both John and Jesus. They cooled off towards John, and they started to engage in hostile criticism against him. So what did they say about him? Verse 18, Jesus says, here's what you say about John. He doesn't eat or drink, and you say he has a devil. So John fit one of the games that the children played. John is as much fun as a funeral. Some of these people, kids, like to play funeral, and I suppose that John's lifestyle was more like a funeral because there wasn't any gaiety in it. John was a very austere man. He engaged in no pleasures, He'd taken a Nazarite vow, which meant that he couldn't cut his hair and that he couldn't drink anything that came from a vine. But he took that vow to another extreme because what John did was to go out and to live in the desert. He didn't live in a house. He wasn't out people's houses and fellowshipping with them. And so John was not the guy that you would invite to a party. He wasn't interested in that. And then when he preached, there wasn't a lot of joy in his preaching. He preached repentance. He preached uh, hellfire and damnation. That's the kind of preacher that he was. And what he preached was definitely the truth. He preached a very straightforward call of repentance and telling people to get right with God. He didn't heal people like Jesus did. And I suppose that there were complaints about him that John is just not a loving type of preacher. All that he ever wants to talk about is hell. All he ever wants to talk about is repenting and giving our sins and telling us what terrible sinners that we are. And so they complained about John. He just doesn't have enough love in his preaching. Now, at first, they were very enamored with his lifestyle. He was different because he wasn't what they were used to. They looked at their own religious leaders and they saw, well, they were frilly. They dressed to the nines. They, they would go to the king's court and they would make themselves presentable to the king. But John wasn't like that. He didn't opt for the religious robes. He didn't wear the, the broad cloths, the, the, the broad-bordered cloths where they would hang their phylacteries. John didn't do that. He was not into this outward, showy type of religion. He had no interest in that, and that made John very different from what they were used to. But finally, that different lifestyle led them to other conclusions. When they got tired of the message, when they got tired of being beat all the time with repentance and coming to God and and, uh, this thing about hell, they got tired of that message, and so they concluded that John is different because he has a demon. John is demon-possessed. And so they thought that he was crazy, just like those lunatics that Jesus had to deal with back in chapter 8. And what was their lifestyle? You remember those two fellows that Jesus cast the demons out of, thousands of demons that were in these men? What were they doing? Well, they lived like a funeral, didn't they? They, they were out there by themselves living in a cemetery. 
And so the people concluded, this must be the problem with John. He is a demon-possessed man. That's why he lives in the desert. That's why he eats nothing but grasshoppers. He is demon-possessed. He's a lunatic. And so they made that association with John. Only a lunatic would live in the way that John does. So you would think then that if they didn't like John, then they would like Jesus because he's the opposite of that. His ministry is more the happiness of a wedding. Now his preaching was mixed. Uh, He did preach about hell and he did preach about repentance. In fact, if you study the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus had more to say about hell than any other person in the New Testament. But their complaint about Jesus was that Jesus is a party animal. He's a party animal. He tempers his preaching by being a very compassionate person. He likes to interact with people. Jesus didn't choose to live far away out in the desert by himself. He loved contact with people. You could say that Jesus was a socialite. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but Jesus would do things like go to the weddings and Jesus would be found at the feast. Jesus was always mixing with crowds. He taught in the synagogue. He went to the temple. Jesus was always in the middle of a lot of activity. And you follow him through those first chapters that we've studied. You see him dealing with thousands of peoples, multitudes, crowds all the time that surrounded Jesus. But the people didn't like that either. In verse number 19, it says that Jesus came eating and drinking. And that's just another way of saying that he was a very sociable person. He is the exact opposite of John the Baptist. And that alone's not a problem. I mean, there isn't anything wrong with being a sociable person. Usually we think that sociable people are outgoing. Those are the people that we like to be around. But these people weren't satisfied with that. And so they took this man that was sinless, somebody who'd never done anything wrong in his life, and they tried to cast him as a terrible sinner. One of the things they said about him, he is a glutton. And that stems from the fact that Jesus did not demand that his disciples would join in the regular fast of the, of the Jews. Now, if you look back at the ninth chapter for just a moment, we can get some insight into this accusation against Jesus. This is another inquiry that came from John the Baptist's disciples, only this time it wasn't for John's behalf, but for their own. And some of John's disciples were not yet quite ready to give up their old religious habits, and so they were allied to the Pharisees on the question of fasting. And so in the ninth chapter, verse number 14, it says, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Have you noticed there that wedding analogy that's working its way in? Jesus is the bridegroom, and the fact that he is there, that he is the Son of God living among them, this was a time of great joy. This is not a time of fasting. In the scriptures, you find that fasting is always associated with mourning. And when you have Jesus in your midst, when he's right there with you, this is not a time to be sad. And so that lack of fasting, not going along with the ideas of the Pharisees, with those Jews, that they fasted oft, caused them to say, well, Jesus then is a glutton. Then they said, he's a wine-bibber. That means they accused Jesus of drinking too much. You know, that question comes up all the time. Is it wrong to drink wine? Is it wrong to drink alcohol? Jesus drank wine. 
And I'm not going to go into all that argument today, but I'll tell you this. If you're looking for an excuse for drinking in the Bible, you're not going to find it. The Bible does not condone drinking. You've got another think coming if that's what you think. Let me read for you just a moment a comment from John Broadus, who is a very able commentator on Matthew. He said, He was accustomed to drink wine as was common, almost universal, those light and pure wines which abounded in that country and which taken in moderate quantity and mixed with a double quantity of water according to custom would stimulate about as much as our tea and coffee. Now, there's no warrant for drinking alcohol like we have today. And further than that, if you're going to take a scripture like this and say, well, that means that Jesus drank wine, we see that he drank wine, and this is our proof, Well, it's obviously a lie what they said about him because if you're going to believe that Jesus drank too much, then you have to take the other part of it too. You have to say he was also a glutton. And I suppose that would make it all right because Jesus did it, they said. And so they complained about this. And they said, well, Jesus also, he is a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus likes to hang around with the tax collectors and we find him with the prostitutes. We find him with the riffraff, the offcasts of society. And Jesus was seen with them. What was his purpose? Why wasn't he hanging around the Pharisees? Well, it's because they didn't thought that they sinned. I mean, what's the purpose of sending a Savior in the world if people don't believe they need to be saved? And this is what Jesus said in chapter 9, verse number 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if you think that you're okay, you don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus if you're not a sinner. Sinners need him. And so if all of you perfect people that are here today, you don't think you sin, then you don't need to come back next week. You don't need the church. You don't need the sermons that I'm preaching. It's only the people that need Jesus. And the ones that, ad- or ones that admit that they're sinners, I should say, those are the ones that need Jesus. So they rejected John and Jesus, which is really typical of the way that people act today. They go to church, and if the preacher preaches about judgment and about hell and about repentance, then they criticize and they take off. And so they go look for another preacher, and if they find one who is an encouraging type, and he does preach the truth, and he gives them the social activities that they need, they won't be satisfied with that either. No matter what the preacher does, they don't like it. James Montgomery Boyce had some insightful comments on this. He said, God has many messengers with many varying gifts. Some are powerful speakers and can move a crowd to tears. Others are intellectual. They make a careful case for Christianity and present many powerful proofs of the gospel. Some teachers are outgoing, talkative, people-oriented. Others are retiring and thoughtful. Some write books. Others lead movements. Still others speak on radio or appear on television. Some are old and teach with the wisdom of their years. Some are young and proclaim the truth with youthful vigor. Some are prophetic. Some are analytic. None of this matters to a generation of determined sinners who say in opposition, this one is too loud, this one is too quiet, this one is too intellectual, this one is too superficial. 
And this is exactly what Jesus is saying about this crowd. No matter what we give, and no matter the manner in which we give it, you don't like it. You're like children that are never satisfied. Now, what we find here would be an example, if we wanted to bring this into our modern day and think about what people do, this is like people that bounce around from church to church looking for that fad. They're looking for the next greatest thing, and they don't even have a clue what the Bible says that you are to look for in a church or in a pastor. And so they get hyped up about the music program and the social events, and what's spoken from the pulpit matters very little to them at all. Let me sum up today's message with the real problem. You see, it's not my personality that drives people away. Some people it might be. You might have a problem with that, but that's not the main thing. It's not the music that the church has that's really the deciding factor. It's not the children's programs. It's not the family outings and the community outreach. The real problem is the one that I started with. It's the G-O-S-P-E-L. The problem that people have is with the gospel. They are offended by the gospel, and they don't believe the record that God gave of his son. And the way that we know this is because if people were really interested in the gospel itself, then it would overcome a conservative music program versus rock music and hip-hop in the church. If they really were interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would overcome the lack of a church ball team. See, the true interest should be what must I do to please God instead of what can I do to please myself. Now, if you don't want to listen to the truth, what will you do? You won't accept the gospel message. You'll, you won't repent of your sins and you won't trust Christ to save you. And so what will you do? Well, you find some excuse not to listen. And so you criticize. No matter what way we do things, people will criticize it. And I think that people really ought to consider this a little bit more. That when you leave a church, what is your criticism? What is the motive behind your criticism? And I can tell you that 99.9% of the time when people leave churches, it's not the biblical basis for their leaving. And there are many churches that ought to be left on the biblical basis. But that's not really the reasoning behind most people. They reason about it because of their personal dislikes. They don't they don't think about does it please God they think about does it please me now I want you to notice one other part that's really easily missed and this is the last part of verse 19 it says but wisdom is justified of her children and I think there's several meanings that can be attached to that one would be that true ministers of Christ will be vindicated Although there are complaints against them, and many people do complain, God will show in the last day that they spoke the truth. And their words, those that believe the words, will be saved, and those that don't believe them will be damned. And so no matter what, a, what style that a preacher has, if he preaches the truth, then God will vindicate his preaching. Then another meaning of this is that truth is vindicated by what it produces. Now, people may say, you know that Brian Baptist church over there, they're really a sorry bunch. Who wants to go to church over there? But I would dare say that I would put the people of our church up against any. As far as what you know about Scripture, I'll take you any day over those that are produced in churches with a lot of style but have absolutely no substance to them. And then we can envision one more meaning, and I'm going to leave you with this one. Those that make the right choice concerning the gospel 
verify the claims of John the Baptist and of Jesus. The real proof of the Lordship of Christ is the miracle that happens in your heart. You know the greatest miracle that Jesus does? The grade A miracle of Jesus Christ? His greatest miracle is that he takes vile, wicked, hell-bound sinners such as we are, and he transforms us into something different. We were self-indulgent. We were self-seeking, purely selfish people. And he transforms us into people that are holy, righteous, and willing servants of the cross. The wisdom of the gospel is vindicated by the change that it makes in a person's life. Now, here's that question again that you need to answer. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he is the Christ and the Savior of the world. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Are you like these children that can't decide what game that they want to play and so you're seeking something all the time, looking for the next greatest thing? Or have you settled down into this, that Jesus is where I find my full satisfaction? I am satisfied with Jesus. And so if you are satisfied with him, then don't complain. Just follow him. Just follow him. That's what he asked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time spent together here in your word. Lord, we do want to be people that when we hear the word of God preached and we hear it explained, when we're told what God's word says that we ought to do, then we want to heed that message, want to hear with ears of understanding, hear and believe and do exactly what your word tells us to do. Lord, I pray that you would work in someone's heart today. Help them to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ today. And then for church members and, and those of, that are part of Brian Baptist Church, I pray, Lord, that you'd work in our hearts that we are truly satisfied with the message of Jesus Christ. And that's what we keep our eyes on all of the time. And we do our very best to give others that same message that we have believed. Bless as we sing today and we prepare to, to leave this place. Help us to be not childish, but to be adults for you, coming with a childlike faith, but not being childish in our actions. I pray, Lord, that everyone here is satisfied with Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.